when I was talking to you about the meditative absorptions getting across the threshold with the concentration that's the path of tranquility samadhi sama samadhi the eighth step on the noble eightfold path which is the path to final freedom and liberation when I talk to you about dukkha that is the path of insight now in order to practice the path of insight there are certain well-tried guidelines for that which I like to mention to you right now one of them is to use always if at all possible the path to tranquility first in other words get the mind as quiet and as concentrated as possible and then after that has happened investigate now one thing to investigate is for instance if there is a very pleasant sensation if there is actually let's say the first jhana at the end of that I said okay look at it also that it has dissolved already it's impermanent then look to see is that dukkha and if anything arises in the mind like I want it back or I would like to have it even better is that dukkha it's a wish it's a desire so whatever you investigate whether you investigate decay disease and death your own and that of nature around you whether you investigate impermanence or dukkha one of the well-tried guidelines is first tranquility then insight another one is I have already mentioned but I like to repeat there are times when the mind just does not want to stand still sometimes it appears that if there was a short circuit it just goes all over the place that is a time for insight meditation and not for tranquility because it's nothing going to be nothing else except a battleground it just won't work at that time so then the investigation into dukkha might be very appropriate and an assessment whether one has actually found something that is totally without dukkha and that is a very worthwhile investigation it's just as well as the other one which I've already mentioned seeing the impermanence of what's going on within oneself that is the second best the best is first tranquility and then inside second best is using it when the mind just doesn't want to stand still and the third <coughs> possibility are the contemplations and the contemplations on any subject as we have done them here with reference to impermanence and dukkha is it dukkha when I have enmity within do I feel good when I don't like somebody it's as simple as that the path of the Buddha is very pragmatic totally realistic and also interesting in that aspect because it was spoken more than two and a half thousand years ago and refers to the human mind as we experience it today nothing has changed except all our technology so we have exactly the same problems that the people had then so we can use all these guidelines all these instructions to the best advantage so we have three possibilities first tranquility then insight only insight if tranquility is impossible and thirdly 
contemplation, taking a subject and investigating it, seeing it for what it is. Now, contemplation can be done instead of meditation, which means that we don't try to become concentrated on the breath or the sleeping or the loving-kindness, but we like to be concentrated on the aspect of having a deeper understanding of ourselves. Discursive thinking is just as detrimental to that kind of investigation as it always is. But it is an investigation in the mind which uses past and present experience to understand those on a deeper level. Not just, I'm having a problem. But where does it come from? I have uh, given the title to this talk that I'm going to give you as Who Am I Really? Because I had to write down titles on the uh, tape list. And it is a very important question. Who am I really? And that investigation and that answer is totally overshadowed by all our identifications. I'm male, I'm female. I'm young, I'm old. I'm beautiful, I'm ugly. I'm clever, I'm stupid. I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor. I'm rich, I'm poor. I'm a daughter, I'm a son. I'm a mother, I'm a father. I'm an aunt, I'm an uncle. Unlimited possibilities. I'm a meditator. I'm ever so spiritual. (laughs) Unlimited possibilities. And we use them all. Because one thing stops. Maybe we were a meditator and we stop. And then we become maybe a carpenter. So we use that. And then maybe we were a daughter. And then maybe the parents are dead. And now it's important to be a mother or a father. Or maybe we're a wife or a husband, and then the partner disappears, and then we're something else again. So we use all these possibilities in the constant flux. And of course, we have a name, which is also identifiable. And most people have changed that name in their lifetime. Not everyone. Some people have kept it. But most people have changed that name already once, twice, three times. Who knows how many times? Maybe they didn't like the one they got, so they changed it to something else, calling themselves Sunshine or something, (laughs) instead of Mary. Or they got married and got the name of the husband. Or they, uh, they got divorced and took the name of the father back. Or whatever. Any number of possibilities there, too. Or one becomes a writer and uses a pen name. Anything is possible. And all that is supposed to fix, to make static, this personality, which is in constant flux. There is no moment when any of that is totally true, because it's always moving and changing. So, but with all these identifications, we try. We try to have a solid picture of ourselves. And this solid picture that we have of ourselves is, of course, strictly unique to ourselves, and only we ourselves know about it. If we're, for instance, a daughter, well, our mother or father might know about that. But if we're a mother, then those kids that we have might know about that. They don't look upon us as a daughter. They look upon us as a mother. Mm -hmm. So none of those identifications altogether are in anyone's mind except our own. And the more of them we can accumulate the more secure we feel that there's really somebody there, which is also the reason for accumulating possessions. The more extension there is, the more there seems to be in the house and in the cupboards, the more it seems as if I'm really there. Because all this stuff belongs to me. Well, then me must be somebody if I've got all this stuff. And actually, it does help to have a look at the stuff that one has. 90% is unnecessary. So 
these are the ideas we have about ourselves. And then the next step we take after we've got all these outer identifications, we also take a step inside. So we find out that we are particularly greedy when it comes to chocolate ice cream or particularly hating if it comes to people who are arrogant or we're particularly intelligent when it comes to mathematics or particularly stupid at that time. So we have all kinds of identifications about our emotional reactions. That's me. I react like that. I can't stand people who are arrogant, or I can't stand people who uh, always talk about themselves. And uh, I particularly like to uh, have ice cream or something like that. So that's me again. Me is getting another identification system about the likes and the dislikes. And that, again, enhances and enlarges this me. Whether it's negative or positive doesn't even seem to make any difference. People talk about themselves in very negative terms just to make that identification system possible. And the sentence very often starts with, I always, I always do this, or I always react like that, or I have always. So that makes it a little stronger yet, because not only do we have this outer thing, we also have an inner identification. And then, of course, all that is sufficient to make us quite sure that there is somebody there. And since we are so sure about that, we don't ever have any doubt about it. We think and act in this way. Now we have six senses. In the Buddhist terminology, thinking is our sixth sense. And actually, we don't find that so strange because we do say, oh, I've had a sixth sense about that. So it's not a a totally unknown thing for us to regard thinking as a sixth sense. With this thinking, is it's just like any other sense contact. Sense contact produces feeling. There's no two ways about it. And I've given you particularly the touch contact of the sitting position as an example for that that we have a contact and then we get a feeling and we become aware of the unpleasant one. But I'd like you to also, in your individual meditation time, to check this out with the other senses. It's a very important insight pathway. There are many ways to approach insight. Obviously, we can't <coughs> practice all of them or talk about all of them in the space of a week. But this one happens to be just within this particular um, talk so we can use it. When you're outside, look at something and see whether you can notice a feeling arise. If it's something that is creating a good feeling, the mind's going to say, beautiful. If it's something that creates a bad feeling, the mind's going to say, ugly. See whether you can become aware of that feeling. It's not easy. It takes a great deal of mindfulness. But you've been here long enough now to have established mindfulness. Because we don't, we're hardly ever paying attention to that feeling. We're usually only paying attention to our reaction. Beautiful, I want it. We see a flower growing somewhere. A feeling arises. Very good one. The mind says, beautiful flower, and the reaction is, I'll pick it. Mm -hmm. There might be a moment of thought before that picking which says, hey, maybe somebody else wants to look at it too. Maybe I'll leave it. But that whole reaction mm -hmm. is due to the pleasant feeling which has arisen. Well, we don't notice that. We're too fast with our reactions. So take it slow and easy and see whether you can become aware of it. Same with hearing, which is actually a little easier. See whether when you hear something, like there's a truck going by, and the feeling which arises is not a pleasant one. And the mind says, first, truck, and then says, ah, 
terrible. Who can meditate with trucks going by? But every, any, the whole thing that happened was sound. That's all it was. But the mind made truck out of it and can't meditate. All that was was sound. Because of the feeling which arose after the sound, we have the reaction system. So all sense contacts produce feeling. And it's very interesting to become aware of that to the extent where one can slow down enough in the surrounding to know it. In daily life, we hardly ever have time to know it. If one were to use either hearing or seeing for the producing of some artwork, the feeling is part and parcel of that. But in daily life, it's much too quick, everything. So thinking is also a sense contact, and thinking produces feeling. And even though we don't know it, it does. And that's why I've said, when you do loving-kindness meditation, and you can't feel it, think it. Eventually you'll feel it, if you do it steadily and diligently enough, over and over again. But now we've been thinking, I am this and I am that. So we all feel it. I am this and I'm that. And I feel particularly those things which I've been thinking long enough. Like I'm a woman or a man, I'm a husband or a wife. Whatever I've been thinking long enough, that I feel particularly strongly. If I've just started meditating, I maybe not have been thinking so long I'm a meditator so I don't feel it yet. And if I've been doing it long enough and thinking it long enough, that's what I feel. And because of that, because of that thinking process, which has turned into the inner feeling, we're totally convinced that that's the way it is. And it's very difficult to see it in any other way. But in order to see it in a different way, we need two things. First of all, we need to realize that that particular thinking and feeling process is at the bottom and is the root for every single problem, for every single unhappiness, may it be ever be so small or may it be large, that has ever happened to us, is happening now or will happen in the future. Nothing else can ever create problem. Only that. It's me. This is a person. This is the one that I want to be. I want other people to support that idea. I want it supported to the point where they tell me that I should be happy about being that, because I myself can't manage that. And if that doesn't happen, things don't go right. And it never happens to the extent that we want it. It's not possible that everybody approves. The Buddha had a great deal of um, ill fame with some Brahmins who were against him. Jesus got killed in the process. And if they have those problems, why shouldn't we? Nobody supports that kind of identification system that we've built up for ourselves to the fullest extent. Somebody might support it a bit, but not totally. So we're always in a quandary. We're always searching for something that we're not getting. And that quandary is that inner niggling feeling that something is not quite right with the best of all worlds. And we might have actually come to the conclusion already that it isn't the best of all worlds, but we haven't maybe quite found out yet why. Maybe we're still thinking because somebody's not doing it right. So, because we're feeling this, we are having problems. Now, that has to be a given, that that is a cause for problem. If that is not a given, the pathway isn't open. We have to first see the cause before we can change the effects. Because if we don't address the cause, 
the effects are going to come over and over again. It's the same as a treating in illness, physical illness, just the effect and never getting to the cause. And of course we do a lot of that because the causes are hidden from us. But this cause here, while it is hidden from our own understanding, it's not hidden from us if we pay attention to what the Buddha said. He gave the cause for every single problem. And he called it our sickness. He said, basically, we are all having this sickness. We are all having the same sickness. He sometimes called the great physician and the Dhamma the great medicine. But like with any other sickness and medicine, if we go to a physician and ask, what's wrong with me, I don't feel so good, and the physician says, well, this is a cause for it, and here's your medicine, and we take the medicine and take the bottle home, put it on the mantelpiece, go by every morning, look at it and say, what a beautiful bottle. This physician is really clever. He's got it all figured out. But we don't start swallowing the stuff, even though it doesn't taste very good. We're not going to get cured, are we? We've got to swallow it completely and utterly so that it becomes part of our being where we can digest it, where it then changes our inner self, just as on the physical basis. It would do that with a strong medicine. Dhamma is strong medicine. So when we know the cause, and it has to be a given that that is the cause, this wrong thinking which produces a wrong feeling, we can also accept the fact that practically everyone in the world feels like that. I mean, that's why it's also such an insidious group experiment and group experience. Everybody thinks like that. So it's very difficult to step out of that and think differently. We can accept that too. But unless we know that any unhappiness, any problem that we have, anything that is within us that doesn't have that inner smoothness, that inner peacefulness is due to that, we won't take the necessary steps. The first necessary step to take after we've accepted all this is the investigation into the three characteristics. Now, I've talked about one of them, Dukkha, I'll talk about impermanence. We need to investigate ourselves from the standpoint of where is this me sitting? Where is it? Is it behind the forehead? Is it behind the eyes? Is it behind the ears? Where is it? Well, no, that's nonsense. Okay, so must be my thoughts. Well, the thought system that we produce, any meditator whether new at it or long experience knows that most of the stuff that comes up in the mind during meditation is utter nonsense. Well, I don't like to identify with, me, with utter nonsense, do I? So, is that thought system really me? And not only is it nonsense that comes up, old stuff, totally uninteresting, fragments of thoughts which make no sense, future which could be well left alone. One would prefer to be totally concentrated, get at least to the first jhana, but the mind keeps thinking. So, am I really that? And not only am I really that, but which one? The good thoughts or the bad ones? Or am I half-half, half black, half white, like a checkerboard? Or am I the one I'm having now or am I the one that I had yesterday? Or am I the clever one or the stupid thought? Which one am I? So, and how many thoughts have I had in this lifetime? There's no way to count. It's impossible. There are no such high numbers. So, am I all those thoughts? So, how many me's am I then? Every time a thought arises, that's me. And where does that me go while I'm asleep? Where's it gone? If I'm the thoughts. And where does the me go if I actually do get concentrated and don't have a thought? 
I mean, it happens at least a little while, doesn't it? So has it disappeared or has it taken a holiday or what happened to it? Is it, is it uh, you know, on retreat somewhere and going to come back or what's happened? Which one is it? Now, this is a kind of inquiry that one has to make oneself. We call that biting into the mango. If one has never, never eaten a mango and one have, hears about it and asks somebody, what does a mango taste like? The person is likely to say, it's very sweet, it's very delicious, it's very soft, and it's very juicy. And then, do we know what a mango tastes like? That could be a peach, couldn't it? So we have to bite into it to know it. What I'm telling you are all triggers. They are all the Buddhist guidelines. But you have to do it. You have to see it. Only then do you know what a mango tastes like. Only then do you know that there's a constant flux, a constant flow, that within all that thought system, there's nothing to hang on to. We can't even remember what we've been thinking today. Never mind 10, 20, 30 years ago, 10, 20, 30 days ago. We can't remember anything. If we want to, we write it down. And interesting also, some people do that, and it's a very good practice. To have a, like a meditation diary or something like that, or even just an ordinary diary, and you write a thought down in there, and you look at that two or three years later, you can't relate to it anymore. You look at it and you think, well, why would I have been thinking that? That seems very odd. But at the time, that's what you were thinking. So the thought system needs to be investigated. Is it me? So maybe you come to the conclusion, well, no, that's not me. There must be something else that's me. So then, how about the feelings? The emotions? that arise. Well, am I the anger or am I the love? Or maybe I'm both. So why am I both things if I only like the one? Why do I have something that I dislike? Am I the emotions that I'm having this minute or am I the emotions that I had last year? Am I the emotions that are triggered by outside situations or am I the emotions that are triggered by my own inside situation? Which emotion am I? Am I the one that's fearful, anxious, worried, and upset? Or am I the emotion that says, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm fine? Which one am I? Which emotion? Which one of these millions, billions of emotions that we've had and that we're having? And which one can I remember? Which one do I know? Which one do I really know and say, well, that's me, both of those or three of them, which one do I remember? And how can I bring it back in order to look at me? So that I can bring it back and say, oh, well, that is me, that's the one, the one I can bring back all the time. Is it possible? <coughs> Investigate. <coughs> no, obviously it's not possible, but you must find out yourself. So what else have we got? We've got thinking and we've got feeling. And then, of course, we've got this body. And this is a very... Uh, interesting phenomena, the body, really interesting, because nobody in their right mind believes that they are the body, and everybody acts as if they were. When you ask somebody, are you the body, they'll say, no, of course not, I'm much more than that. And yet, look at this thing in the mirror, and who's looking, and who's in the mirror? It's me, isn't it? Well, there's a very interesting thing you can do. When you get home, maybe you have some old photo albums. And if you haven't got them, if, if your mother is still around, maybe your mother has kept some from when you were lying on a bearskin rug. <laughs> well, have a look. It says it's you underneath, got a name there. <laughs> have a look at that. And then the first day in school and then uh, the graduation, and then the prom, and God knows what else there is. And then have a look. That's all you. And then while you're looking at all these photos, look in the mirror. You see, that's me, this is me. Really? Which one? 
that one was me, this one is me. How, is all, how can I say me to all those photos and the one that's looking in the mirror? And obviously, there weren't enough photos taken because the change is constant. But there will be enough around to give a very good idea of what this body is doing during a lifetime. And then if you have enough imagination and you look in the mirror, maybe you can even imagine yourself to be 20 years older. And that's me too. And then maybe on your deathbed. And that's me. And that was from the bare skin rug to the deathbed. All me. Millions of them. Every day a different one. Which one is it? The one that's standing there in front of the mirror and saying, this is me? Is that really me? What about the one that's standing there tomorrow? Might have got a sunburn, looks quite different. So which one is it? There's another meditation possibility to find out that quite clearly, other than through the photo albums, which is quite useful. And I'd like you to try that one. It's called the 32 parts of the body. It's one of the many meditation methods of the Buddha. But I have modernized it a little. I'd like you to sit in your next meditation, sit down and pretend you've got a zipper in front here. Open the zipper up. And then take out piece by piece what you find inside. Whether you know every bit or not doesn't matter. Everybody knows enough about the inside of a human body to take out enough bits and pieces. If you get concentrated, you come become aware of the exact position where you're getting it from, where you're getting the liver from and the kidneys and the gallbladder and the intestines and where that all to be found. And maybe you can even get a feel for what the touch of touching them feels like. If you can't, doesn't matter. Take them all out. Look around if you've got them all. Put them in nice little heaps in front of you. <laughs> then take out the bones. As many as you can find. You can take out all the bits and pieces of the face too. And put that all in nice little separate heaps. And then look at it. The gallbladder, the kidney, the liver, the blood and the bones, the bile, the excrement the intestines, and then look at that and say, is that me? And the mind immediately says, of course not. And take it bit by bit in the proper order if you can and put it all back in and zip it up again. And there's me. No problem. This is me. All zipped up, all back together. And yet, without all those bits and pieces, you couldn't be here. So how does this work? Am I really the body? The Buddha gave the uh, simile of a cart, the bits and pieces of a cart. He says, we have the wheels and we have the axle and we have the floor and we have a brake and we have the side pieces and, uh, and a bench. And that's what it's called. And then we put all these together, and then all of a sudden it's called cart. Well, we can use automobile if you like. The same with us. We've got liver and kidneys and heart and all the rest of it. And certainly, they're all there. And then put together in a certain order and still functioning, it's called me. When it stops functioning, it's called a corpse. And yet, it's the same bits and pieces in the beginning until it all rots away. So there must be some mistake in our thinking process. The mind immediately rejects the idea that all these bits and pieces are me. Because which one? Well, all of them together. And besides, they're not very pleasant to look at. And uh, they also don't feel very nice if you would touch them. So... The mind rejects it out of hand that that could be me. There's more to me than that. So which one is me? Is the one that thinks about those things? Well, that's a thought process. Or the one who meditates? Well, that's also in the mind. 
So we need to investigate not only our own bits and pieces, but also the flux and the flow. And when we do that more than once, then we will see that there is a manifestation of a human being, but that the idea of me is strictly a mind process. There's nothing there to prove that that is a me. Nothing at all. We just thought it up. And also, there's nothing there to prove that we are actually all separate and that we are solid and static. We just That's an optical illusion. Our scientists, many years ago, made experiments in the bubble chamber and they found that there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. They are nothing but particles coming together and falling apart. Unfortunately, they did not include themselves in that experiment. <laughs> if they had, they'd be enlightened by now, probably. Some of them in later years have had an inkling that some of their experiments and some of their scientific um, understanding lacks the last possible understanding and they have made very tentative movements towards spirituality. But this bubble chamber that they built up, was, I think it's about 30 years ago or more even, showed them quite clearly not a single solid building block. That's us. Not a single solid building block. Do you remember learning in school that all our cells change every seven years? I remember it distinctly. And I also remember thinking at the time, now, that's funny. Then if that's all changed, I must be somebody else by now. But I didn't think that. I thought it was still the same. I didn't understand it, in other words. <coughs> they don't change in one heap. It's impossible. You can't get all these cells out of the body, put them away somewhere in the garbage can, and get a new lot in. I mean, it doesn't work. They're changing constantly. So that after seven years, the whole... Uh, cell, cellular system within us has changed. So that constant change is a constant movement within the body which can be felt in meditation. There's a constant coming, going, coming, going like that. In fact, if you become concentrated and mindful, you can feel it without meditating. You can sit there and feel it. It's there all the time. Uh, sometimes people say it's a pulsing. Well, yes, of course it is. And that is, of course, happening all the time because there's nothing solid anywhere and that's what's happening in the mind too even one thought never mind that the thought has arisen and now is going to disappear again during the time of the thinking it's going like that that too cannot be solid nothing is solid everything is transparent there is no solid building block anywhere but we have to approach it from where we can actually experience it. We can experience it in this body with the bits and pieces, with the change of our looks, constant change of our looks. We can experience it with the thought process. We can experience it with the feeling process. And then what else is there? What else have we got? That's it. The Buddha calls this the five khandas in Pali, skandhas in Sanskrit, Aggregates translation in English. Meaningless, huh? The five bits and pieces of which we consist. The five bits and pieces, one is the body. That's obvious. We've talked about it. The other four I've already explained, but I'll now enumerate them. The sense contact, sense consciousness. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling. And then the next thing, the perception, the labeling which depends entirely upon what language one speaks, and also depends very much upon memory. The perception of each person is different from the next. Now, if you 
If I show you this, everybody knows it's a clock. I mean, that's not very difficult. But if I show this to a two-year-old, he or she might think it's a toy. It's a little block to build houses with, or maybe it's even something that you roll on the floor. So the two-year-old hasn't got any memory of clock, so it takes it and starts throwing it around. It's the same piece of equipment that we know to be a clock. The two-year-old doesn't have the memory, so calls it something else in his mind. So this is the same with us. One person sees a beautiful woman and says, I've got to follow that one. She's wonderful. Next one sees the same one and says, Her? <laughs> same thing. The perception that we have is very individual. And from that perception, that is the labeling, which happens, we have our reactions. So the first thing is the sense consciousness, the second one is the feeling, the third one is the perception, and the fourth one is the reaction. Now, I've asked you to do that, to check that out, not only with the sitting position where you get unpleasant feeling, but with other sense contacts, with seeing, hearing, particularly those two. But you can do it also with tasting. It's also very uh, easy to uh, notice that if, it ta if you think that the taste, if you have a feeling there that is pleasant from the taste, then immediately the perception is, good and then the mind might say I want the recipe or the feeling is not so good and the mind says can't cook and then the next thing might be I've got to get out and get something decent it's a feeling which has arisen so we consist of those five bits and pieces I'll name them again the body which is easy to remember and then the four parts of mind sense consciousness, the feeling which arises from that, then the perception which is the labeling, and then the mental formation which is our reaction. The mental formation is sometimes called the karma formation, because that's where we make karma. Every time we react negatively, bad karma. Every time we react positively, good karma. So those are the five bits and pieces. And the Buddha says, there's nothing else. That's it. Now, when we investigate our own impermanence with regard to these five in the way I have outlined, see whether you find something else. If you find something else, please let me know. <laughs> if you don't find anything else, then relate to that. See whether you can find that meaningful, whether you can see yourself in a different light. The different light that we see ourselves in comes only after having done that several times. It usually doesn't just happen like that. But karmic resultants may help one to see it immediately. That's also possible. One part which belongs in there, and I'll only be able to mention this very briefly, is rebirth. Now that in the West has been in the past a very difficult subject. People seem to feel that this is something so out of the ordinary that they can't relate to that. In the Eastern countries, whether Hindu or Buddhist, um, doesn't matter. It's a given. It's taken for granted. But even in later years now, in the West, we have had more books about it and people feel more inclined to look at it and not reject it out of hand. Rebirth does not mean that you are going to come back. You are not going to come back. But the karmic residue comes back because there is the craving to be and has been coming back over and over and over. So with that, we can see, if we can take that on, we can see that it's totally impersonal. There is only a karmic resultant, which is that has embedded in it the craving to be and therefore has a rebirth consciousness. That is a rebirth consciousness. 
and the reverse consciousness enters the womb <coughs> at the time of conception. Now, if we look at that, well, it certainly wasn't me last time, isn't going to be next time. It's only a constant flux. It may help us to see ourselves a little more impersonally. And when we see ourselves a little more impersonally with all the other um, ways and means which I have outlined, we don't become so terribly worried about ourselves. It isn't all that important. It's just happening in the whole round of samsara, the realm of birth and death, in that whole change in the universe. It just keeps going. That's all. And it isn't me that's got to transcend the world. In order to transcend the world, we need to relate to these methods, the methods of looking at ourselves in a different way. And the methods which I've outlined of checking out the body, the thoughts and the feelings, and seeing whether there's anything else to be found, and then also checking out these four parts of the mind. They are technically called the aggregates of the mind, these four parts of the mind, and see whether there's anything else, and how those four work together again and again and again, like a computer. You press a button, and it just goes blink, 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 and there you are. And with that, Pressing the button, it's our sense contact. Our sense contact means that we are pressing buttons. And because some of them create the good feeling, we go into the one aspect of wanting and the one that is unpleasant in the, in the aspect of rejecting. Now that needs checking out for oneself. You only need to believe as much which is necessary and remember as much which is necessary to try it. That's all. And when you try it, you will see that there's something very interesting. This is like a laboratory. The laboratory in which the whole universe is happening. The Buddha said, the whole of the universe, O monks, lies in this fathom-long body which includes mind. Fathom, one fathom, old-fashioned way of measurement. Maybe, I don't know, five feet seven or something, I'm not sure what it is. So the whole of the universe is to be found here. If you are interested what the universe is like, use this as a laboratory. It's there. It's got anicca, dukkha, anatta. It's got impermanence, it's got unsatisfactoriness, and it's got substancelessness. <coughs> and this substancelessness, if we really latch on to that and can feel it, then everyday life is just flowing. There's no difficulty. The Buddha said, the unenlightened person has two doubts that hurt them. The enlightened person has one. The two doubts that hurt us are mind and body. The body hurts, the mind reacts. The mind hurts, and we react. Emotional, mental, physical. And the enlightened person has one. That's a body that can still hurt, but the mind doesn't react to it. There's dukkha, but no suffering. So if we can have, and this is the inside path, and as much of it as you can handle or manage, that much inside there be. The same, by the same token, with the tranquility path. I explained as far as the third jhana. Well, there are eight. That's about as far as we'll get in this course. Doesn't matter. It's all has to be done. These are the guidelines. And the rest of the time that we still have here, I'll talk about the third aspect of the teaching, which is moral conduct, our behavior, virtue. Calm and insight, all based, of course, on purity. I can give you about two or three minutes to ask questions. Having seen that 
there is a part that is meditation, love, and peace. Having seen that all the rest seem to be ego, a need to control, judgmental, critical, and when, I'm, when that is moved aside, the void. There's a big hole. <laughs> Where? In the mind? <laughs> In the body? <laughs> after that, that has learned this, this, this critical attitude, this controlling. Well, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, what you need to do in that case is if you feel that that is a, a useless thing, and it is, of course, critical and controlling, is it always needs to be substituted. Every time it arises, you substitute mm -hmm. it with something else, with loving kindness. What I'm saying is that it's, uh, oh, I don't want it. I just realize that that's all I have. Okay. <laughs> I don't want it is dukkha. <laughs> that's the second noble truth <laughs> I want it or I don't want it that's dukkha no don't think like that say okay I had all that and now I'm seeing it right so I'm learning to substitute whenever it arises I'm aware of it I'm mindful I am using the four supreme efforts I understand the content of mind it is not a useful one it's not wholesome I uh, uh, substitute with a wholesome one. Okay? And the more often one does it, the easier it becomes. And in the end, it's very simple because it's habitual. You see, we are not static. We are not, I am this. We are in constant flux. So you just change it from one to another. Okay? Yes? <laughs> yes, but it has two meanings, the word supreme in this instant. It is such an effort, you're quite right, but also it has supreme results. And it is, there are four of the 37 factors of enlightenment, the four supreme efforts. So they are, yes, they are supremely difficult, but supreme results. But it, the difficulty is only in the beginning. It's, you can compare that to having a stalled car started. To get it going, it takes a lot of effort. You've got to have six fellows in the back of it pushing, pushing. But when it starts rolling, it rolls. It's not difficult anymore. It starts rolling. You've got to give that initial push, that's hard work, and then it rolls. But don't let it stall again. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the perfect way of making oneself unhappy. <laughs> and see, if I were to go around all the time and thinking, well, why don't these people know about impermanence? Why don't they understand dukkha? <laughs> I'd really be unhappy. <laughs> Okay, uh, if you feel very strongly that these people are doing something which is detrimental to the environment, then you have two options. The first one is 
that you have compassion with their um, ignorance because they're obviously making bad karma if that's if they if they have some bad intentions if they're just ignorant and you can actually help to change that ignorance because you are have uh, more knowledge about that not just opinion it's got to be knowledge right well you can try and impart that knowledge if they want to listen you know it mustn't be opinion it's got to be a real real deep knowledge about it okay but to, to worry about it that is not very useful so if you think that they are uh, just doing something which is not so good for the environment well just have compassion with the people that are doing it you know yes but that sensation takes you over yeah well that's where we become impersonal if you get taken over by bias it's not a sensation it's, it's an emotion yes. sensation is physical no no it's not the emotion creates physical reaction yeah. but you've got to be able to distinguish between a physical sensation and a, an, an emotion so you have an emotion of dislike well look at it and see is that good for me no, of course not. <laughs> okay. But you know, at this point, uh, I, I, this morning, I, I don't want to be saved, and I was over in my loving peace time, and this, this emotion just took me over, and one inch of my heart started to beat. Mm. I was moving at a rapid rate, everyone else was walking slowly, and I well, first of all, the first thing to do is that if you have a negative emotion, you must be aware of the fact that you're making bad karma. So you're only hurting yourself. I have had a totally different reaction to this water going on the grass. My reaction was, isn't it nice? They're making it pretty for us. <laughs> because it only started since we've been here. You know, it wasn't going on in the beginning since we've been here. When we were, after we've been here a while, it started. I thought, oh, they're making it pretty for us. My, Very my nice of them. Yes. Yes. Comes from the intelligent mind, which knows that the unwholesome is bad for you. It's just like you don't stay with, a, with your hand on a burning stove, you know, you know it's hurting you. So the will comes to change that, take your hand off it. It's the same here. The Buddha calls that we're burning ourselves. So you have enough intelligence to know not to burn yourself. Good people are, some people aren't, don't have that intelligence. They keep on burning themselves. Right. Ah, 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 no. No. There's willpower involved in all of it. But you don't know that you're burning yourself every time you have an, a negative thought. So you've got to be told. You do, but you haven't paid attention. You do have direct experience of it. Every negative thought creates unhappiness. So you do have it, but you don't. But we don't pay attention to it. We put that down to some somebody else who's to blame. These stupid people that are doing these stupid things—they're to blame. That's why I'm feeling unhappy. But that's not true. I'm feeling unhappy because I'm reacting negatively. This is taking responsibility. You might think about. It. I uh, I'm using too much time. I'm sorry. We'll say our little verse for food. Please repeat after me. <coughs> Reflecting carefully, I use this food. Reflecting carefully, I use this food. Not for pleasure. Not for indulgence. Not for indulgence. But only for maintaining this body. But only for maintaining this body. So that it endures. So that it endures. For keeping it unharmed. For supporting, life. for supporting life, so that former feelings of hunger are destroyed, 
and new feelings from overeating do not arise. Then there will be for me a lack of bodily obstacles and living comfortably. I wish you a nice lunch.